For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. If you haven't listened yet to episode 199 with Vanuatu and climate activist Flora Vano, please do. It's a, an impassioned story. It's about climate impacts and extreme weather in the Pacific and building a women's movement to fight its causes. Flora's amazing. This week, we're focusing on Fiji, Vanuatu's neighbour, and we're looking at the fashion industry there. My guest is Ellen Whippy Knight, the founder of Fiji Fashion Week, which turned 16 in 2023. It platforms local designers, and it's mainly focused on the local market, but also the Fijian diaspora. I've known Ellen for ages. She's amazing. She lives in Sydney, but she's from Fiji. I, I really admire her. She's like, um, I always use this word powerhouse about people I think are amazing and doing loads of stuff. But I think Ellen really embodies that. She seems like this. she's got boundless energy and creativity. She's also a very glamorous very, very glamorous dresser, which I appreciate. <laughs> but she's done so much to build the industry in the country that she was born in and raised in. In our interview, I ask her about its history, but also we talk about what's going on with manufacturing there, how it all started in middle last century, I guess, with the Indo-Fijian tailoring businesses, then really kind of taking off in the 80s when Australian and New Zealand brands were first looking for offshore production opportunities. And remember, that's very close. Fiji's very close to Australia and New Zealand. But now the industry faces challenges as it sort of seeks to modernise, but it's also about price competitivity, right? As usual. So we talk about that, but we're also talking about glamour. It is Ellen, after all. So there's a lot of great stuff about the first designer labels from Fiji in the 60s and mostly about the opportunities today for young designers, but also models and creatives. I was lucky enough to attend Fiji Fashion Week in Suva last year and it was fab. I loved it. Particularly catching up with young designers, meeting people like Lysassa, who you'll hear Ellen mention, and Hupfelt Herder whose work I'd already sort of seen it in the Commonwealth Fashion Exchange that happened in Buckingham Palace a few years ago. Also, Tamizia Tukamia. I hope I've said your surname well, Tamizia, forgive me if not. He was a standout and actually we might get him on the show in a future episode. I absolutely loved his collection. He studied in LA and he also runs an independent boutique there in Fiji supporting local young talent. It's very, very good. What else? I got to visit a rural high school. The kids are encouraged to enter Fiji Fashion Week student competition. And I've got to say that that parade was a highlight for me. It was absolutely brilliant. The level of talent in these young creatives who don't have money and access that they'd have if, I don't know, they're in a big city. It was just off the charts. It was brilliant. I'll share some pictures. I was so impressed. And they were modelling for themselves as well. It was really, really good. So, we're going to talk about all this stuff and I will just give you the heads up that next week I've got two very different stories that are about fashion craft traditions from First Nations Fijians, two different interviews that came out of a workshop that I did when I attended Fashion Week. Okay, now let's hear from Ellen Whippy Knight, the fabulous founder of Fiji Fashion Week. You can sit over there now, darling. Go. Come and join us. <laughs> Who are we talking to? 
Well, we're talking to Ellen Whippy Knight. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me into your lovely house. We've actually got another guest who might not contribute. Who is it? <laughs> His name is Scrabbles, and thank you so much for having me, Claire. It is such an honor. I am such a fan of yours and your program. And today we've got Scrabbles sitting with us, and unfortunately he can't talk, and if he did, he would take over your show. <laughs> and he is? A Labradoodle, <laughs> the love of the street. All right. So we're going to be talking all about Fiji Fashion Week, but I wanted to begin with, for those who don't live in or have never visited Fiji, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about this island nation in the South Pacific? It's got more than 300 islands, right? But two thirds of them are uninhabited. What do people know Fiji for? Actually, I was going to say, I know it for its incredible surf breaks because my husband's That's obsessed. Right. So cloud break, right? But, yes. but tell us what. Well, Fiji is a beautiful part of the South Pacific. It's a country of about 380 islands. Uh, we're known as Melanesians and there are Polynesians, Micronesians and Melanesians that make up the Pacific region. We are mainly known for being a tourist centre because of the sun, surf and uh, sand. And the thing that really sells Fiji is its people. Uh, you know, tourism Fiji takes a line out of the hospitality that Fijians are really good at. And I think that stems from our culture where we live an extended family system and everybody has to put in for each other. You support each other. You run next door and borrow a pound of sugar and you don't ever expect it back. And when it's not tourism, the other thing that we're very famous for is rugby. If you say rugby in Fiji, the government will throw you dollars. for So at some stage in my life, Claire, I'm going to have to try and organise how do I do a collaboration fashion and rugby? But we are good rugby players because we're physically, um, the bodies that mm. are physically fit for or made for rugby. And it's sevens that we're really good at. We got our first gold medal in Rio. There's also obviously incredible beaches haven't you got the fourth largest barrier reef? Yes, we do. Have We have beautiful scuba diving tours in Fiji because we do have the fourth largest reef there. And in fact, Fiji is surrounded by reefs. It also supplies a lot of our food. Uh, something that we're very concerned about is overfishing in our territories there. And of course, climate change as well. But we are protected by those reefs, so we really need to respect them. But yes, the, the one thing about Fiji that you're going to love when you arrive at the airport is the big smiles and the bulla and welcome to Fiji. What I love is that you started talking about community and about the way that Fijians live with one another and that that's what makes the tourism sing. And I think that's so amazing. We, we often, I don't know, on this podcast, we're obsessed with how we relate to one another as humans and also by the power of community to make the way we live more sustainable. That's actually core to it. Yeah, absolutely correct. So, you know, the Fijians used to live off the land. What has not changed even through colonisation, people rem may remember that we were a British colony we were first ceded to Britain in 1874. We became independent in 1974. But what has not changed even through colonization and commercialization is the community spirit that we have. 
you know, there are so many pros and cons about that. Sometimes it actually has held them back and in often it has supported community-wise when somebody's down and out. You know you can always go next door. You know you've always got your family there. Uh, when I say the cons is, for instance, uh, if someone passes away in your family, you take about a week and two weeks off work. You know, that's just so unsustainable when you've got a whole lot of people in the same company doing the same thing. So it's just, it's it's that kind of community. Well, it, it's interesting, the sort of tension there between traditional ways of doing things and then commercial business or expectations around, I don't know, industry, which we're going to talk about. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I think what many people might not be aware of is that Fiji is also a garment producing country. So there's a beautiful emerging independent fashion design community there too. It's kind of like there's both sides. You've got the manufacturing, apparel and footwear factories, and you've got independent designers. Let's just talk about that for a moment before we dive into the manufacturing side. Yes. Tell us about that. Yes. Fiji Fashion Week will be celebrating its 15th anniversary this year, which is a real huge milestone for the Pacific and for a region that is not known for fashion per se. So basically what we've done is what most people do. We've provided a platform for the local designers to be able to show their clothes. We have shows every night for Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And then we try to organise lead-up events of that one week. One of the issues that we have there is that the local designers are not really ready for the international market. So those lead-up events could be um, bringing people in, experts from Australia, New Zealand, wherever, who might run workshops and talk to the designers about their business and how they created it. And then uh, we have a show that goes on for two hours and it's a collection show. So it's not like what they do overseas with independent shows. It's a collection show of 15 designers per show showing a number of looks, which is generally about sort of 20 looks each. So it's a long night, but it's, a, it's, it's more entertainment than it is sort of industry-based because, you know, we don't really have buyers there. We have it at the Vodafone Arena. It's a sports stadium and we dress it up and, you know, the ceilings, it's quite industrial. The ceilings are very high. The rooms are massive. If you could imagine a huge basketball court, two basketball court rooms um, and fixed seating stadium. And the Fijian people and the Pacific Art people just absolutely love it because we've run it really, really well. It really has given the Fijian community another look at how you can present garments that people are making for business. And we've introduced a lot of SMEs from this. We're very good for the local market. I mean, all the designers that appear in Fiji Fashion Week have got a huge following from the diaspora market, the people who live overseas now and locals. And it's really quite common to walk in the streets and notice that they're wearing our local, the local people are wearing local designers. Actually, this is about giving a platform for Fiji's creatives as well, right? So makeup artists, models. Yes, exactly, because they never had this before. If you go on a Fiji Airways flight, nearly every second girl on that flight has been trained by Fiji Fashion Week as a model, <laughs> and it's brilliant. Our models are so stunning. I brought models to Australia in 2016 to model in Australian Fashion Week because we had a, a space there that they gave us to showcase some of our Fijian designers, and a couple of the agents came on board 
um, you know, we're still trying to establish ourselves onto the international scene. We're going to come back to designers, but first I wanted to just contextualise this with the conversation around manufacturing and look at how the industry developed. Basically, we only made clothes to dress ourselves. And if somebody was a chief machinist in your family, they would make the clothes for everybody in your family. But then we had a manufacturing industry that evolved in the 1980s. And prior to that, you had tailoring shops that sewed for those who couldn't sew. It was a community-based industry, if even if you want to call it an industry. How I got into fashion, I think, was because my mother used to sew like crazy. I had seven brothers, and she would then make seven shirts and one dress for their elder sister, and we all looked like the Brady Bunch. And I wasn't having that by 10 years old. I said, this is it. I'm going to start making my own clothes. And I used to love sewing using upholstery material. I don't know why. Did you? You were upcycling? Yes, because it was so structured, I think, you know, and I loved the patterns. Oh, but not old curtains. No, I, I used to go to the shops and buy them with what little money I had, which was almost nothing. But then in those days, everything was sixpence and, you know, one shilling. And I remember you just walk down the street and go to Mr. Singh or Mr. Patel or Mr. Lal, and you'd say, this is the kind of dress I want, leave it with him, and you'd come back three days later to pick it up. There's no way that you'd sit there and give him a pattern or say, you know, I want it made this way or that way or in this kind of stitching. So, and what you got in three days' time is what you, what, what he gave you is what you got. We only had one fashion house, and that was Tiki Togs. Tiki Togs was in the 1960s. Absolutely stunning collection. It's really worth, well worth anybody who's really interested in how fashion industry started in Fiji is to look at that brand, Tiki Togs. Uh, and then, you know, it sort of died out and natural when when the owners passed the business on to their family. But, but anyway, um, so it was Indian people that started the sewing And the Indian people came to Fiji during the indentured labour system, which the British introduced. And that labour system um, was to come and work on the sugarcane plantations. I did a bit of research and I thought listeners might be interested to hear how the history fits in here. So you mentioned colonisation. If if you look back, formerly the British colonised Fiji in 1874, before that there were Europeans coming to take things as they did everywhere, right? So sandalwood was a big thing. You can imagine how that goes, basically all pretty much all gone by the 1820s. And I thought this was very interesting for our conversation. In the 1860s, before formal colonisation, Fiji was attracting European settlers who wanted to capitalise on the boom in cotton prices caused by the American Civil War. So they planted cotton there. And of course, this is the usual colonisation story. Take what isn't yours, bring disease. So I was reading about a you know, a, an 1880s outbreak of measles that killed tens of thousands of Fijians. So these stories happen all over the world. But in Fiji, it was a little bit different. The colonisation happened after the abolition of slavery. The first British governor, his name was Arthur Gordon. He saw himself, and obviously we have to take this through a kind of modern lens, but he saw himself as something of a protector of the Fijian people. So he was, relatively speaking, for the times, quite progressive. He did at least try to figure out a kind of law system that maintained or allowed Fijian communities to maintain their their structure. One of the actions that Gordon did, and a number of governors after that, was 
to introduce the Great Council of Chiefs. Now, that was already in position, but from a less formal way in Fijian society. We knew who our chiefs were. We respected when the chiefs said jump, you say how how high. That kept the people together. Gordon granted autonomy to Fiji's chiefs over local affairs and the colony was divided into four regions and then further subdivided, each ruled by a traditional chief. And this setup actually lasted until the military coup in 2007. Gordon called his policy Fiji for the Fijians. And to this day, more than 80% of the country's land is Fijian-owned. Obviously, I did research on this and I'm reading it out. I didn't just know all this. But Gordon also banned the exploitation of Fijians as labourers. So far, so enlightened, yeah? But who was going to work in the colonizers' plantations? It was this guy who decided to import indentured labourers. Now, this is not the subject of our podcast today, so I'm not going to go into it in too much depth, but I will put a link in the show notes if you want to research this. Suffice to say, and I got this from a South Indian political magazine by a journalist called Rajendra Pradad, the British Slavery Abolition Act had come into force in 1834. And though it was billed as a revolutionary moment in world history, the wheels of slavery were reinvented and renamed. And the indentured labour system was instituted throughout the empire. Under this, which lasted from 1834 till 1917, the British employed Indian labour for five-year terms. And there were more than a million Indians serving largely as plantation workers under this system. In Fiji, more than 60,000 Indian indentured labourers were recruited to work in the sugar plantations. And while the system was different from slavery in that they were hired for five years, yeah, it was based still on deceit and exploitation, with recruiters targeting mostly illiterate people, often in districts that were beset by droughts and famine, and promising them riches that, of course, weren't there. Many, though, stayed on, and today, around 37% of the country's population is Indo-Fijian. So that is the background. What can you tell us about the garment industry? The cotton industry is gone, right? That was a... Oh, yes, it, yeah. it, it got overtaken by sugarcane um, production and copra. And, and Which is what? Copra is the end product of a farming coconuts. So you, the copra is actually the coconut. It's scraped out of the shell and then it's burnt. And then from copra, you make oil and all those soap products and cooking oils and everything else. But, you know, the big, what you did say, which was interesting, is the biggest trade that uh, we had before we became independent was sandalwood and, and also whaling. Oh, really? Yes. So, so my surname is Whippy and my forefathers, David Whippy, was the first, when I say white, I mean the first Anglo type person to come to Fiji and be accepted by the Fijian chiefs of Fiji. And remember, we used to be a cannibal country too. David uh, Whippy came from Nantucket Island, Boston, Massachusetts. And Fiji was also, they came there looking for whales. So the funny thing oh, is... Oh, no. Yes, I they mean, did. God. They did, they did. Um, but, you know, in those days, whale oil was necessary because they used the the oils for lighting lanterns and the interesting thing about all of this, Claire, is that Fiji never really capitalised on the fact that we could have used those whale skins for clothing, 
Mm. or for protection of some sort. Mm. Fabric commercialised that. But it wasn't Indigenous. No, it was, uh, we had tons, lots, schools of whales. Uh, we don't see them that often No, because the bloody humans have taken away all of yes, nature. Yes, it's all gone now, but we do, what Fiji lives under now is a threat of um, over-farming of fish, overfishing. Yeah, right. And interestingly enough, we're sort of talking now with the Ministry of Fisheries and Forestries to try and introduce a, you know, blue fashion into Fiji, which we should have had a long time ago. What do you mean? With blue fashion is doing things um, with making fabric out of seaweed as well really? as... Yes, Amazing. it's all very, you know, just yeah. on the cusp. It, yeah. We're all ta- talking at the moment and using fish skin to make leather. It has to be done because our manufacturing industry is on the decline at the moment. There's a number of issues there. Uh, And those issues started a long time ago. I understand that most of the factories started in the 80s. Yes, Uh, they started in the 1980s. Uh, It came about with uh, Australian and New Zealanders looking for places closest to home to manufacture anything from sports, shoes, clothing and uniforms. So they came up with this agreement and it was called the South Pacific Regional Trade and Economic Corporation, big word, and the short of it is Spartica. So basically what that did was it kind of, you know, just in a nutshell, it introduced tax-free zones and it also, because the labour in Fiji was very cheap, which also created another issue of people not being paid well and all working close together like in a can of sardines, the unions couldn't get their foot in the door because the governments didn't really support their fight. But this Spartica arrangement allowed Australia, New Zealanders, Americans to come and manufacture in Fiji in a tax-free zone, tax exemptions all over the shop, and even so that they were also allowed to repatriate their profits to their countries. Mm. So not a good story, really, because it may have brought supposedly, in inverted commas, economic opportunity to Fijians, but it didn't pump money back into the community. No. Correct. We, we did really benefit from it, uh, the country itself. It, in its first eight years, uh, we bought in something like that $100 million. Then we had a series of coups as well. And then some taxes was introduced and that Spartica arrangement disappeared into the ether. Well, the manufacturing industry had its heyday. They've been affected by rising production costs. And then we've, you know, unfortunately, we've had a number of coups parties taking over, army taking over, and that's affected the confidence of sewing in Fiji because, of course, the delivery times are affected. Oh, of course. I mean, when when were the coups happening? Well, we've had a whole series. In fact, we've had three. In 1987, there was one, and that was at the height of the success of this trade agreement for the manufacturing industry. And in the 1990s, and then we had another one in the year 2000. And I actually have friends, Australian friends, who were making a scuba diving gear in Fiji. The first one affected them very badly. They were promised, um, you know, that everything's gone back to normal, come back. And they did go back. And then we had a second coup. So they took it to China. And and so obviously that disrupts business. But what was it like for people living through it? Was it violent and scary? Oh, it was or terrible. was terrible. A lot of people who thought that this was going to be for the good of the democracy of the country, soon found out that when you're run by a military dictatorship, 
you've lost your word, your opportunity to speak freely. Okay, so fast forward, what's it like today? Can you share some stats on how big this industry is? Well, in 2017, the Fiji textile clothing and footwear industry was worth about $100 million and provided employment to 7,000 people, with 90% of them being women. Mm. There are a number of manufacturers that are working ethically, providing great working conditions. I was doing some research into the different factories that are operating in Suvana. One of them was called Janam, which started in the 80s with 15 machines and 25 workers. They've now got 750 workers. They're making sportswear, uniforms, workwear as well, rather than fashion. But those guys are SEDEX and RAP certified. They're audited by Smeta. You've also got Mark One Apparel, which I was looking on their Facebook page and they were showing their new daycare centre so that working mothers can feel confident that their children are being looked after properly while they're working. So things are happening in the right kinds of factories. Oh, absolutely. Mark One Apparel, um, that's owned by Mark Hallaby, and Kukai. And Kukai is run by and owned by Rob Crowe. Uh, you know, he now owns the whole, in the whole franchise. It's not a franchise anymore for me. He actually owns Kukai. And very proud to say that Rob Crowe is half Fijian a Fijian mum who comes from a very chiefly uh, background. Rob, what he did was uh, he, together with Mark Halliby, they created an environment that would make it easier for women to come to work on a daily basis. You know, we don't have creches in Fiji and no one ever thought about that before. They've done very well. Their working conditions are brilliant. The women work in beautiful settings. They've got cafes. They've got areas that they can go and have some downtime. In 2023, Fiji's minimum wage was raised from $2.70 an hour to $4. What's the cost of living like then in, in Suva? It's expensive. Fiji is becoming expensive. People in Suva cannot afford to buy meat because meat is expensive. They can't afford to buy fish, even though we've got tons of it around us. The fact is that they, most of these people are now living on noodles, canned corned beef and canned fish. And because of our weather structures there, often the farms get destroyed. So it's not a nice picture. A quarter of the population is living underneath the poverty line. What's stopping more regional fashion designers from moving production there? Uh, we don't make fabric in Fiji, so we have to import it. And at the moment, whilst I have been trying to have people, uh, designers from Australia and New Zealand come and manufacture in Fiji because labour costs are still a little low and because we're so close, it's really difficult when it comes to the fabric situation. I know that a very high-end brand, Australian high-end brand that was manufacturing in Fiji has now withdrawn because of the cost mm. of importing luxury fabric. And the small local independent designers, they're not making in Fiji's factories either, right? They're sewing at home. Yes. And one of the main reasons for that is, although we've tried to say, you know, just to, for, from a community level, I know that you have to reset the machines when you're doing small runs and that really affects your you know, overall production line, but they won't do it. Uh, and there is no connection between our fashion industry and the manu garment manufacturers because of most of our designers, because they don't have the technical education, yeah. they don't understand how to fill in spec sheets. 
Look, I think there's it's going to happen one day, and the only way that it can happen, Claire, is if our designers were able to have technical education and study the and know what the five elements of design are, go to a school for three years and focus on what a quality production is all about and what design actually is. And the fact that fashion is a business. You know, in the early days, I've knocked on every single door in Fiji and, you know, a lot of them have been closed to me. A very, very quick funny story is that I went to visit a government department trying to get funds and sponsorship. And the minister at the time said, oh, so what is it? Is it just like pretty girls walking up and down in a pretty dress? And I said, yes, as the end result. But what you don't know is what the supply chain that creates jobs to get to that result. Mm. He had no idea whatsoever. (laughs) All right. We haven't talked about designers, so I want to finish on that. Who are the names we need to know? Okay. You know, all these designers, as I mentioned, absolute raw talent, except for one of them, uh, Hupfeld Herder, who is now studying, doing a PhD in fashioning Fiji, it's called. He's actually at the Western University in Parramatta. Oh, right. Yes, so here in New South Wales. And very interesting person, one of our original fashion designers. He's someone to look out for. He's extremely popular amongst the diaspora market and in the Pacific region. There's Lassias and Devetawalu, who we sponsored to Australia. He's just finished his Bachelor of Fashion and Design at the Fashion Design Studio, which is a campus in Ultimo Tafe, and done very, very well. So much so, I mean, this is a real reflection, Claire, of how talented the kids in Fiji are. And Lysias is one of the first, but if we had a school, it would make all the difference. Who else? Michael Mosio. There is uh, Moira Solvalu. What she does is resort your real typical resort clothes, what you would wear on a, you know, really lovely, balmy, tropical night. She's got your flowing caftans and beautiful structured shorts and matching shirts, beautiful flowing dresses and in prints that she's designed herself. You mentioned Hupfeld. Hupfeld Herder, yes. Hupfeld is Rituman, uh, an island nation that comes under the jurisdiction of the Fijian government. Now, his work is so incredibly beautiful, and I reckon it's the first time I looked carefully at Fijian fashion design, and that's because it was part of this showcase in 2018. A previous podcast guest talked about this, Kit Willow, on, I'm going to guess, a stab at episode 30-something. She was part of it too. It was called the Commonwealth Fashion Exchange Exhibition. It was held at Buckingham Palace, and it was like bringing together different designers from 53 countries, including, of course, Fiji, but also Pacific-wise, Samoa, PNG, Cook Islands, Tonga, Solomon Islands. But Fiji's representation in this exhibition was this incredible dress by Hupfeldt. It was, first of all, were you there? Did you go? Yes, to the I did. It was amazing. It was held in Buckingham Palace. And the objective of that Commonwealth Fashion Exchange was to partner designers, high-end designers with emerging designers. One was to do the dress and the other was to do the accessories. So I had a wonderful conversation with Anna Wintour. That was a highlight for me. Did you? Oh, absolutely. Was she interested? Was she Really yes. curious well, about the well, techniques so, or was she just hiding behind well, the glasses? Well, she was looking at, uh, she was, no, she actually asked quite a lot of questions. Obviously, the reaction is Fiji has a fashion week. Yes, it does. And, you know, a really growing, growing one. But Hupfeld's 
garment. It was very intriguing for the guests there because uh, we still use an age-old fabric that we make ourselves called tapa, masi, is better known as from the bark of the mulberry bush. So beautiful. It is stunning. And the other thing so that how, we... Tell us more about that. Uh, uh, yes, so it was it's stunning. And, and plus, he buys the tapa and then he puts his own print on it. You know, it's very difficult fabric to work with because it's the bark of a tree that he's been battered and battered and Ooh, battered. okay. Yeah. And so then it How becomes, do they do it then? So, that- so what you do is they take the bark of the tree off and then the women sit there, add water to it, and this slight gelatine substance, which natural, is all natural, yeah. all natural, and then they beat the living hell out of it, and then they roll this thing out until it becomes a fabric and then it's dried. Wow. And it often comes it comes out in a very light, creamy colour and it's quite still quite absorbent, so you can put inks. And then they use the inks, natural inks from the local plants, and then they print their designs on it. Um, and our designs are reflective of our culture, and reflective of the tribe that you come from. So you see a Masi print and you know that's from the north, that's from the west, that's from the east. But then it's so soft now that you can actually, and malleable, you can actually make it into sew it and it goes through a normal sewing machine. But it is still stiff because it doesn't fall and drape like cotton does. Traditionally, what was this cloth used for? Ceremonial purposes because it was special or? It was only used for ceremonial purposes. The chiefs were dressed in it. They tied it around their waists and then they secured it with mangi-mangi, which is a fibre from the coconut tree. And it was also used as ceremonial gifts for people who are coming to visit or they're going somewhere, like the Queen came and we gave her elements of that tapa. It is also used as decorative pieces as well. And we'd wrap up our dead in it because it's a ceremonial piece. There's reverence around it then, and so how do we square it being used in the fashion context? You have to get permission. You certainly need to get permission if you are going to use any of those iconic pieces. You can't copy them for sure. We did have an issue in 2012 with a big American designer who completely copied the print full on for her spring-summer collection. So I wrote to her and wrote to her agent and I said, this is what you've done. You need to cease and the least you can do is recognise the tribe that you've taken it from and compensate them. Did they? And they did not respond at all. And all she did was drop the collection, but she copied it tooth for tooth and now for now. Disgusting. It was terrible. If you're going to work with Indigenous motifs or crafts, then you need to co-create with their buy-in, with their permission. You can't just knock it off and go, that's a nice pattern, I'll have that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems that's elementary, right. but it happens so often it in does. fashion, right? Yes, it really and truly does. And so we, our government hasn't got procedures or policies in place that can challenge us. And, and I know globally it's a very difficult and very expensive exercise, you know, following up people who, who are appropriating your designs. But what we've said to our designers is that you must have a policy in place that to make people understand that this is unique, this is Mm. your print. 
could you wear it? Are you allowed to wear it if you don't have permission to wear well, it? Well, you, yes, you can. Mm. Yes, you can. Um, they've really dropped the restrictions on that because it's now But is it people, still respectful? It, it is because it's only made in a respectful way. People make bridal garments out of it. Uh, All the Fijians that live overseas, when their children get married, they'll have a traditional Western style yes, a white dress but they'll get married in the tapa outfit, in the Masi outfit, and then maybe later on for the reception, they'll wear a traditional gum. And it is so stunning. It's very beautiful. So, yes, you can wear it, but, you know, you wouldn't make a skirt of it and wear it to town with a, mm. you know, with a cl- cotton top because mm. that is being disrespectful It's about to respect. It. Yes. Cultural sustainability is such a beautiful and important, I think, under-discussed conversation. How do we bring that together with potentially... The environment. Well, you know, it's a very difficult thing for Fiji to be completely sustainable, um, but we have introduced the subject this year and it is the theme of Fiji Fashion Week. And one of the main reasons why it's difficult for us, Claire, is because we don't have good fabric on hand for the designers to use. Mm. And it is expensive for them to buy good fabric that has been made sustainably. And then, of course, this Masi fabric that we've been talking about, the organic fabric, it's not in a safe state where you can wear it every day. What we need to do is work closer with the TCF industry, with fabric suppliers to make it cost effective for our designers to buy it. We've got a brilliant industry coming up. It needs funding. And, you know, with funding, you can do all sorts of things. And we really need to just re-educate the government to let them know that rugby is a great game, but fashion's even better because we're human beings and we need clothes. You know, we have a million tourists that come to Fiji to buy from us. Mm. Since we don't have a school, we bring over Australian and New Zealand fashion educators, namely Nicholas Huxley from Australia, and they come over and run these short workshops. Every time that happens clear, there is a big difference in how the student designers produce the next collection. It's one of the deals that we make is that we bring you to Fiji Fashion Week. We ask you to please share your experience with the people. And by doing that, they the way they do that is through workshops. We take them to some of the schools to visit some of the kids and talk to them about what they do. School kids. School kids. Isn't that yes, nice? We take, we take you to the village schools and it's so delightful. You just can't imagine how delighted and how excited these kids are in these village schools to see. And, you know, because fashion's visual, right? So when you're showing them these, they're seeing things that they've never had before. You know, we welcome people like you, Claire, with so much experience and people who are game changers because that's what we need in Fiji. And your experience, like, as I said, we're bringing Nicholas Huxley to Fiji and all the other educators we've brought in, they've made such a difference to a country that's got so much talent. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press.
Because I love you. 